You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients. Oh my. I'm Pio Nanavetti. And I'm Joe Records. And today we are playing a deep dive episode with Xavier Baker and Kevin Croker discussing medical loss ratio or MLR requirements. And just to give a little background here, a medical loss ratio is a measurement of the percentage of premium dollars that a health plan spends on medical claims and quality improvements versus administrative costs. Plans are required under a variety of federal and state requirements to keep their MLR at a certain level. In other words, they are required to spend a certain percentage of their premium dollars, often 80 or 85 percent, on medical claims and quality improvements rather than administrative costs. And as we'll hear, these MLR requirements have been in place at the state level for some time. But federal regulation in this area really picked up since the enactment of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Kevin and Xavier will touch on potential risks and opportunities that health plans should consider when assessing their compliance with MLR requirements, as well as the contractual and other arrangements that can help ensure a high MLR. As I said, this is a deep dive episode, so deep, in fact, that we are going to take it in two parts. Today, we're going to discuss what the MLR is and a bit of its history. And then next time on part two, Tune in again, and we will discuss how the MLR is calculated, as well as some of the compliance risks that can arise for plans. Xavier, let's start off with a very general question. What are we talking about when we use this relatively opaque term, medical loss ratio, and what do MLR requirements look like? My assessment is that you probably know it better as a health benefits ratio, which is a term the industry used before MLR really came in vogue with the ACA back in 2010. The HBR is a similar exercise as the MLR, and in basic format, it's designed to look at the percentage of each dollar of premium that goes toward the coverage of incurred claims, or really medical expenses. And after the ACA in 2010, you had the development of formulas that were applicable to the commercial market generally that looked at the ratio of what we call incurred claims in the numerator plus what are called quality improvement activities, which we can talk about in a little bit. And the denominator, the bottom of the fraction, looks at the total revenue minus any taxes or fees, government taxes or fees, with certain exceptions. And that yields what we call the MLR. You mentioned that the MLR came into vogue with the ACA back in 2010. What MLR rates did the ACA set? Under the ACA, there are two separate targets. In the individual or small group market, plans have to meet an 80% MLR. And in the large group market, you have to meet an 85% MLR. When the ACA was enacted in 2010, the MLR had an element of populism to it because It is very accessible to a a mass audience to say that 85 cents of every dollar of premium you spend has to go towards your medical benefits. Or in the individual market, 80 cents of every dollar, at a minimum, has to go towards your medical benefits. So that resonates with folks generally outside of the industry. It makes sense. It's intelligible. So what happens if you don't hit the MLR target? If you don't hit that ratio, then you have to pay a rebate to your policyholders. That's also politically popular, the idea of money going back to your pocket as a consumer or a large group, you know, an employer plan, if you are not getting the benefit of the bargain as required by law. 
Now, the MLR only goes so far, right? If we're talking percentages, then one natural response, if you're limiting the percentage of dollars, premium dollars that can cover your GNA, your admin costs for administrating the plan, for having FTEs to answer the phone from consumers and the like, one response is simply to inflate the amount of premium that you expend. So if I'm constrained by an MLR that says 80% of my premium revenue has to go towards certain things, one way to overcome that without necessarily getting lean and streamlining my admin cost is simply to increase the size of the pie that I have to then slice up. 80% of a bigger pie still leaves me a bigger amount to cover GNA. Xavier, you touched a little bit on the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and how the medical loss ratio has come to be a large part of what we think about in health insurance regulation. Kevin, would you like to touch on the history of, of MLRs in health coverage? Sure, Joe. Thanks. So I'm a little bit older than Xavier, and my dad was a history professor. So I guess I'm, I'm a little attuned to some of the history on MLR. I can't recall all the details, but I believe medical loss ratio with that term has been around for a long time, far in advance of the ACA. And I am certain that state Medicaid agencies have used the MLR concept for a number of years. And some of those states have required health plans that exceeded their medical loss ratio to return funds to the state. That's still the case today, but it is something that preceded the ACA by a number of years. That's an excellent point, Kevin. There's not a lot new under the sun in terms of what the ACA did so much as making a national standard that is applicable beyond the Medicaid space. And, and Kevin's absolutely right. There are a host of areas where the medical loss ratio has been introduced either at the Medicaid level or used from a rate setting standpoint as a heuristic to evaluate whether the rates that have been set, whether it's a capitation rate under something like Medicaid managed care, which I, I think both Kevin and I will touch on later, or a premium rate setting process generally, MLR is a useful barometer to determine whether the premiums are sufficient to cover the expected costs of the program in question. Well, let's dive right into the MLR in different markets. We've talked about Medicaid, which is complicated enough that we could have an entire episode on the history and current application of MLRs in Medicaid. But then also, Zavia, you mentioned the separation between individual and small group MLR and large group commercial MLR. And then we also see the MLR come up in the context of Medicare Advantage. What are the differences between the way MLR has been implemented in the different markets and what's similar? So I'm going to frame the approach to MLR on the three buckets broadly, commercial, Medicaid, and Medicare Advantage, Joe, that you brought up. And I'm going to try and, and imitate the history perspective that Kevin laid out for us earlier. These were staged and sequenced as follows. Back under the Obama administration, with the enactment of the ACA, and subsequently some tweaks to the way the Medicaid managed care regulations operated. The Obama administration's approach was harmony, synchronicity. Thinking about the market participants, many of these plans play both 
in the commercial markets as well as federal programs like Medicaid Managed Care or Medicare Advantage and Part D. The ACA rolled out the MLR requirements for the commercial market when it was enacted in 2010 and subsequent regulations were promulgated and then a whole host of guidance, which is very important across all three of these sectors, was promulgated by SOSIO, which used to have a different name, but SOSIO is so much more euphonic that we're just going to call it SOSIO because that's the relevant term for 2011 to present where it's had a lot of the guidance. So in the commercial space, again, it's really that simple equation of what do you spend on medical costs plus quality improvement activities, which are specifically delineated things. There are regulatory requirements about what one must do to constitute a quality improvement activity. And what are the things that qualify as quality improvement activities? Can you give us some examples? As I noted earlier, it's delineated. There are a number of elements in the regulations that spell out what this is. So in brief, they're designed basically to do one of four different things. Improve health outcomes, like increasing the likelihood that you will reduce health disparities in a particular population, prevent hospital readmissions, have a comprehensive discharge planning program, for example, improve safety, reduce medical errors, lower infections, mortality rates. These are all things that are empirically measurable, which is useful. And this is perhaps the fuzziest, implement, promote, or increase wellness and health activities. Again, still susceptible to empirical measurement. This is illustrative, though. It's not an exhaustive summation of everything that could potentially be a quality improvement activity. For example, you could look at evidence-based medicine with population health management or therapeutic interchange or drug interactions to improve quality or outcomes. Those are examples of things that may constitute quality improvement activities. And then you subtract taxes from the total revenue. It's pretty straightforward until you get into the details. In That was in 2010 and a couple of years after through the rulemaking process, 2011-2012. Medicare Advantage rolled out its MLR requirement shortly after that. It's largely the same with some key differences. Could you elaborate on some of the key differences between the Medicare Advantage MLR regulations and the commercial market regulations? Now, earlier we mentioned the rebate requirement for the commercial market, for the individual small group market where you return any excess where you don't hit the MLR. So if you had a 78% MLR, for example, in the individual market, you had to hit 80%, the 2% difference, you then cut a check to your policyholders. In the Medicare Advantage and Part D world, it's done on a contract basis, and there's one report for each contract year. If you miss your target, which was set at 85%, you then have a remittance that goes to CMS, to the federal government. In fact, they simply adjust their payments to you to take that into consideration. If you whiff three years in a row, then you face the risk of intermediate sanction. You may not be able to market to capture new enrollees. There are some other risks involved there. And then if you just have the worst luck at setting your rates in your bids and you miss for five years, there's the door. You'll lose access to the program. And that's the challenge in MA. And that's a heavy hammer. What we're talking about in the other markets, you essentially solve the problem with liquidated damages, for lack of a better characterization, whereas in, in MA and, and the Part D program, you're out after five years of, of straight misses. But five years of straight misses is, 
I'm not aware at present of anyone who has suffered that consequence because the plan has the ability to take corrective action to improve, sharpen the pencil, shall we say, and how they set their rates. And then in 16, as I alluded to the great project on the healthcare side of the Obama administration, they revised the Medicaid managed care regulations. And one aspect of that was the introduction of what Kevin had talked about earlier, which is in many states, Florida and others, there was a medical loss ratio component for at least certain aspects of the Medicaid program. What the 2016 mega reg, as we like to call it, because it's really thick, tons of dead trees, and it's a real page turner. That mega reg introduced the concept of an MLR for Medicaid nationwide with a wrinkle. There is no remittance obligation at the federal level in the regulation. The federal government left it to the states because of the nature of the Medicaid program as a state and federal partnership. Each individual state can determine whether it wants to require its Medicaid managed care organizations to pay a remittance to it if it fails to hit the target, which was set at 85%. Although, again, Medicaid, flexibility for the states, federalism, the states have the ability to set a higher MLR. So some states may say we want an 88% MLR for our aged, blind, and disabled subset of the Medicaid population. You could do it on a population-specific basis, potentially. If the state has an MLR requirement with a remittance, then CMS holds out its hand and gets its share based on the financial participation in the Medicaid program. Are there any other unique considerations on the Medicaid managed care side? One other interesting wrinkle on the Medicaid side is that the MLR, earlier I waxed poetical about actuarial soundness and rate setting. Under the Medicaid regulations, now the MLR of each Medicaid managed care organization is a consideration that CMS uses to say, is this health plan, is this Medicaid managed care organization getting paid a sufficient amount to cover the costs, the reasonably anticipated costs for the program? If your MLR is 110% for a contract year, that means you're hemorrhaging money. You're paying a dollar and 10 cents for every dollar of premium to cover the costs of services for a population. Margins generally are thin in Medicaid managed care. No one can survive. It's an unsustainable program for excess of 100% MLR, likely having a 98% MLR. Again, plan by plan, the designs and structure may vary, but really high MLRs, excess of 95% put a lot of pressure on health plans ability to deliver services. And so the MLR is considered as potentially a canary in a coal mine about whether the rates are sound, because you don't want to leave vulnerable populations like Medicaid eligibles subject to a plan collapsing or exiting a market. It can impact competition. In Medicaid managed care, it is typical to have multiple health plans competing to provide services, with the thinking being that it provides a better quality of care and better standard of care for the enrollees. So, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about what happened to states in 2016 that already had set MLRs for their Medicaid population? Thanks, Pyle. So many states have contractual medical loss ratios that preexisted the 2016 MEGAREG. Those states, for the most part, continued to maintain those MLRs. The federal regulation really addresses reporting requirements. It didn't disrupt what states were already doing. 
as Xavier pointed out, states have a lot of flexibility on how they establish medical loss ratios, and they've taken different approaches. New Mexico is an example of a state that's had a medical loss ratio with an obligation to repay excess for quite some time. California is an example of a state that established a medical loss ratio but limited it to the expansion membership. And the reasoning behind that is when the expansion occurred in California, as in other states that opted for expansion, there was a great deal of uncertainty as to how much utilization the expansion membership would create. And as it turned out, the federal government and the states overestimated the amount of utilization for expansion membership, which was essentially part of the ACA allowed the states to expand to cover additional individuals with higher incomes that previously weren't entitled to Medicaid. So Kevin, the idea was that there might be pent up demand for healthcare services for the Medicaid expansion population who had been previously not covered? That's exactly right, Joe. But that pent up demand was overestimated. And so the plans generally were fairly profitable because the expected cost that went into determining the premium was lower than anticipated. And so in California, they established sort of anticipating that this might be the case. California established a medical loss ratio for the expansion membership, but not for other Medicaid categories. The result of that was that the plans in California, pretty much across the board, ended up with medical loss ratios that were below the 85% established threshold, or at least they were headed that direction. In some instances, those plans took action to address that situation by agreeing to pay their providers higher amounts once they realized that the utilization was going to be lower than anticipated. The plans decided, hey, well, we can correct this by making payments to providers through bonuses or through increased payment rates. And so there was a little bit of a challenge around that, right? Because you can do that. You can pay a provider more money and have that count, but you have to use the correct funds to make those payments, and you have to do it for the correct time period. But that's, a, I think, a key point here is when we talked about the Medicare Advantage membership and the fact that you can lose your eligibility for five years of missing your medical loss ratio requirements, there is some ability for plans that are monitoring this closely to hit their targets. You can hit it by bonus payments to providers. You can capitate your network, which is something that California plans have done historically. If you pay all your providers 85% on a capitated global basis, then you can sort of target to hit your ratio. And so there is some ability here, if you're a plan, to manage this in a way that tries to come as close to that target as possible. So Kevin, I think that's an excellent point. And if I could go back in time, I would lead with something like, why should anyone listening to this care about MLR? And you've hit the nail on the head. 
This is not just something for plans to think about in terms of an obligation to return funds to policyholders. It's not just something interesting for policyholders wondering at the end of a year if they're going to get a check because their health plan didn't hit a target. But providers care and third-party vendors and other entities that play in the healthcare delivery system care because it really affects the contractual relationships, the sorts of incentives, and the types of activities that health plans can engage with these other types of entities, providers, PBMs, and others, in the space. The MLR permeates the way we deliver healthcare now, not just in the commercial market, but particularly in the federal programs. And one of the interesting elements is with respect to commercial as well as federal programs, the health plan signs an attestation that goes to the federal government that says this is a full and true statement. It's the CFO or the COO, CEO. Some lucky person signs on the line which is dotted representing that the data that is submitted is accurate. And for all you FCA lawyers out there, your ears perk up. Because that's the hook that creates a whole specter of liability for health plans, even in the commercial space in some regard, because you're misrepresenting information to the federal government. Now, it's not necessarily going to be FCA because it's not federal funds on the commercial side, but it still creates a risk. But the bigger risk is on the MA, Part D, and Medicaid managed care sides. Because the moment you're misrepresenting information to the government or causing to be misrepresented, you indirect false claims. You have a whole risk of suspension and debarment, triple damages, and a world of hurt that makes you have to talk to some of our colleagues who've appeared on this podcast. And so that's why should folks care? It's because, one, MLR covers how we do business, how we deliver services, and two, because there's this sort of Damocles hovering above us if there's an error or omission intentionally right? There's an intent element to the FCA that occurs. But even if you make a mistake, there is the risk of penalties, civil monetary penalties or other sanction, if you don't take corrective action. Thank you for joining us today. And don't forget to tune in next time for part two of this discussion about the medical loss ratio. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.